Well, good morning, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Let's all stand up and worship the Lord together.
amen this morning? Amen. amen. All right, while you guys are standing up, turn around and say hello to someone. everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. My name is Dominic Nuncio. I am the Executive Pastor of Ministries. Uh, my name is Ian O'Mara. I am the oh, Director of Community Life and Youth. Can you still hear me? No. No? How about now? Ah. I am not in technical type, whatever that is called. So my name is Ian O'Mara. I'm the Director of Community Life. I have nothing to do with Mike. <laughs> Good. We exist as a church here to equip everyday people to walk with Jesus every day. So that's our mission. That's what we hope happens even as we've sung these songs. So great to hear you guys sing Be Thou My Vision to encourage each other in the words of who we sing to, whose we are, who our focus is, who our aim is. That's what we're going for this morning. And we hope that this service continues our worship as we leave this place and go to the places we live, work, and play. So thanks for being here with us. And the way we start that is with our connection card. Who's got a bulletin? Oh, this is the interactive part. In the back of your bulletin, on the back page, is our connection card. If this is your first time, it's your 50th time. If you call this place home or you just regularly attend, we want to hear from you. We want to connect from, from you, with you. So if you're a first-time visitor, come see me after the service. Or if you're someone who comes here regularly, you got a question, come see us after the service. On the back side of that form, you'll see the prayer request form. And we, as a church, love to pray. And it's impossible for us to see each of you on a patio every weekend. So one of the ways that we can connect with you is by praying for you. And we take time as a staff every Tuesday morning to pray for all the prayer requests. And there's also a team that prays for everyone. So if you know someone that needs prayer or you yourself need prayer, we'd love to partner with you in that. So uh, in a moment, we'll be doing the offering. And as the baskets pass, just put that form right in there. Yeah. Here we're also a family of families. And we're going to talk about our first announcement, which is going to be life groups. That's actually our second announcement. Sorry, I jumped the gun. But life groups are so important. How many people are in life groups? Go ahead, throw your hands up. We're a family of families, and what that means is as a community, we get together and we encourage each other. It was funny. During the first service, we mentioned this slide, and I got a text immediately. Someone signed up for a life group because they were like, I want to get in. Because we believe here that's where transformation happens. In relationship is where the transformation happens. So if you haven't had a chance to get in a life group, this is an opportunity on the 15th of April, which is next Sunday. We're going to have our life group leaders. We're going to have some life group members out there. And this is the opportunity to engage with people and say, ask the questions. We're not going to ask for a blood oath where you have to sign up for your life. It's just a small commitment just to get involved because we want to equip each other for the Lord's work. I'm so glad there's no blood oaths. That's good. Um, we're going to be doing something that same weekend. It's called Experience LJCC. And those are for those who are just checking out our community. As Ian said, we're a family of families. We believe that when we move from rows to circles, true transformation happens. And so we want to circle up together for those who are exploring things of faith, exploring their church, and seeing if this is going to be a, a great fit for you, and we hope it is. We'll be meeting with the pastors, and you can be hearing information about our church, ask questions. So sign up today. We'd love to, for you to be a part of that next weekend. And also, as a family, we have this amazing uh, situation happening at the beach. What is that beach thing happening? The beach bonfire? The beach bonfire. No, no, it's something oh, to the beach. beach it's baptism. our beach baptism, but it's yes. not only a beach baptism, it's a beach baptism with a barbecue. Who doesn't like barbecue? Burgers, beach, baptism. 
we're going to be, and the Lord's going to be praised. If you haven't been baptized, this is the opportunity. This is a, the, the confession of the inward transformation. You've accepted Christ, and you want everybody to know around you, hey, this is who I'm going to serve for the rest of my life. That's what baptism is about. And we want to hear from you. If you want to get involved, we have plenty of people already signed up. It's going to be at the Shores on the 29th of this month. So write that in your calendar, 29th of this month. We're going to do it after the second service. That's right. And even if you're not getting baptized, please, please come and be a part of the celebration that is people making a public statement saying that I choose to follow Jesus and I want others to know. Literally from death to life, God has brought new things. And, and so it's going to be a party. Come eat a burger. Come give a high five. Come see Steve in a wetsuit. That's amazing. Oh. <laughs> Scott, we're keeping you. We're keeping you. You're good. Okay, last thing, and then we're going to transition into our time of offertory. Uh, we have a board of trustees nominations. In your bulletin, you'll find that. This is a servant leader, high leadership level in the church, helping think through where the church is going to accomplish our mission. And so if you or someone you know would be a, a good candidate for that, please write their name in. We want to find these great servant leaders, these men and women, to help us think through the next season of LJCC. With that, we're going to transition to a time of offertory, and uh, this is a time for those who call LJCC their home um, to respond to the goodness of God, to respond to the graciousness of God that he's given so much that we respond and say, of course, God. We respond with our time, treasure, and talents, and, and that's what we do now. And some of you give online, and some of you give with year-end gifts, but if you've come prepared, if you've come out of joy, not out of reluctancy, we're going to give. And for those that are our guests or filled out a prayer request form, please drop that into the basket as we receive our offering. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue in musical worship. Jesus, thank you for a time to just be with you, to be with each other. I do pray that this would be a time that we uh, take steps closer to knowing you more and walking with you fuller and seeing you greater. And as we gaze upon you, as we say that you are our vision, that our, our hearts turn to you, that you are the treasure that we long for and seek to. And so we, we respond by equipping the mission of LJCC to spread that good news, to present a high view of you. And so we do so now by giving back to what you've given us. And uh, we pray that you would give wisdom to those that use the finances and, and uh, to help fund this mission, God. And so we respond to you now. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.
shall come I know that your strength is enough song thank you so much uh, Jesus's resurrection is our remedy and that's what that song's talking about uh, it's him uh, his love his his uh, atoning sacrifice on the cross his resurrection from the grave his ascension into heaven uh, it, it is a remedy for everything that ails us uh, you know what remedy means it, it means it sets something right so for the next seven weeks we're going to talk about uh, seven uh, key life uh, threatening things uh, that uh, Jesus' resurrection addresses. And so I start with the question, what does Jesus' empty tomb mean to you personally? What would it mean for us personally? We were talking about this last week uh, at Easter, of course. But going forward, we want to talk about functionally, practically speaking. Is this just some kind of an interesting, sentimental holiday that we, uh, we, we come back to every year and celebrate and then get on with the rest of our life? Or is this a life-changing, life-altering event in human history? that becomes the touchstone for everything we experience by way of uh, the best life possible. So that's what we're exploring. So for you, what does Jesus' tomb mean personally? And, and perhaps you're saying, well, it doesn't mean anything to me personally. I'm here with a friend who believes that, but I don't. Uh, maybe today as you hear what we're talking about, as you reflect on the music sung, uh, the prayers prayed, it might occur to you that God is calling out to you inviting you to open your heart and your mind to him to be in a relationship with him. Not as an emotional, sentimental thing, but as a life-changing decision 
to let him shape the way you understand what it means to be fully human and fully alive. So uh, the Apostle Paul, who was antagonistic toward these followers of Jesus because he was a true blue Jew, uh, he was a rabbi, he was a highly educated guy, an international man, a citizenship uh, in, in Israel, citizenship as a Roman citizen, which is a very big deal. He spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Uh, he, was, he was a very impressive person, and he was very ticked off about this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. But then um, he became a follower of Jesus. God completely surprised and disrupted his life for good. And he spent the rest of his life making sense of it. And one of the things he did in a letter, he wrote in a letter to uh, some people in Corinth, second letter he wrote to them, he says this, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, earthly tent being our bodies, we have a building from God. That God, by his grace, is doing something to construct a life in us that outlives our, even our physical body. Certainly it includes it. This is not a platonic thing. Plato would say your body is, is corrupt and material, therefore can't be in any way spiritual. Uh, this is not a platonic statement. It's saying, uh, it's a Hebraic statement, that our body is a significant part of who we are. But even if our bodies were out, even if our bodies let us down, God is building something durable and eternal in us that includes uh, our body. But we have this building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And he says, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Uh, being naked uh, in certain contexts is awesome, in other contexts, not so much, kind of awful. Do you ever have a dream that you walked out of the door naked? I won't ask you to raise your hand because everybody's hand would be up in the air and, you know. But the idea is that, that, that horrible feeling of, oh, dear Lord, I'm naked, you know. Uh, and it's not a good moment to be naked because I'm out in public or something like that. I feel kind of technologically naked right now. This is full disclosure. I left my phone hooked to the charger. The problem is the charger is in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> and so I had all these uh, texts that I was going to be making uh, once I got safely ensconced on the plane, and then as I was going through the last little place where they say, have a nice flight, I said, yeah, you got it. I reached in my phone, my pocket, my phone, I'm like, wait, whoa, oh, other pocket, I had a coat on. Because it was 35 degrees in Dallas. It was 80 on Thursday, it was hailing on Friday at dinner, and by Saturday morning, it was 35 degrees, and I was so grateful I thought at the last second to bring a jacket. And I was so smart about it, because I thought when I was packing up, I thought, oh, my phone's in my jacket that I'm going to be wearing as I go out into the 35-degree weather to Love Field, which is the best name of an airport in the world. Love Field versus Fear Field or something like that. Wouldn't it be horrible? You know, Death Field. We're going to Death Field to get the plane. But Love Field, and I'm feeling all the love of having been in Dallas, and I reached into my pocket, not my other pocket. Oh, my gosh, I left my phone, and I will not be clothed fully until Tuesday, apparently. <laughs> Courtesy of FedEx is going to bring my new suit. Uh, for me to wear, and, and so I know that feeling at that technological level. I've also had those dreams like you, where you feel like, oh, it's really awkward to be naked when you don't plan on it, you know? Um, that's a whole other story, I guess, you know, that's a whole other sermon. But uh, when we're clothed with this full experience of being in Christ, uh, we will no longer feel that na nakedness, we'll feel this completeness. Uh, it'll be kind of like what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, naked and not ashamed, fully vulnerable, fully open, fully revealed as, as to who we are. And this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension 
into heaven, accomplish this, and yet it's, it's yet to be realized. This is the theological enigma. It's now, but not yet. It is now functional in our actual everyday lives, but it will be fully complete at a, at a time in the future. So we don't sit around waiting for heaven to show up or to go to heaven, which is really a, a, a really crazy distortion of American theology that we think, first of all, everybody goes to heaven because we deserve it. And then secondly, we're just kind of waiting around to go there. And if you don't believe this, you say, well, it's stupid to think about it. I'm just going to live my life fully now because this is all there is to live. Paul is wrestling with all these things because he's talking to people who believe in Greek uh, philosophy, Platonic philosophy. He's talking to people who believe in all the Epicurean philosophies, etc., that surround him. But he's saying something profound has happened. There's only one category for it, the resurrection of Jesus. Because when we're clothed, he says, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan. We're yearning. We're looking forward to what we are to be. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you have that sense of groaning. You have a, have a deep sense that this is true. Every day, every week, every month, every year, I'm experiencing this more truly. And it becomes more core to who I am. That I can't imagine life without this. And at the same time, you have this sense that why am I ever more aware of my own sin? Why am I over, ever more aware of my own lack? Uh, is this not working? No, it's working. And so you're outgrowing your old nature. And you're starting to see all the limits of it and the liabilities of it. You're saying, wow, awesome thing to know that God is developing me into my truest expression of humanity uh, and personhood. So he says, we, we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that great? It's not diminishing our mortality. It's saying it's part of something much, much bigger. It's awesome as far as it goes. It can't go far enough. What we were made for cannot be accomplished out of our mortal, limited being. And so it's not to denigrate that and to say mortal things are bad. It's to say, no, they're awesome. They're probably, uh, they're, 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 they're necessary. They're just not enough. God is doing something bigger and better still. And so he says, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God himself. This is not wishful thinking. This is God's act in history. God who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. But meanwhile, as he says, we groan and are burdened. So what is the burden that makes us groan? It's just what I've been saying. That sense of uh, just everything is kind of just out of reach. Just I fall short. I have these good intentions, but I can't seem to pull it off. Uh, and here's some words that symbolize those things. Pride, envy, lust, greed, gluttony, anger, sloth. You're thinking, gosh, it sounds like my fraternity. Um, <laughs> pride, envy, lust, greed, gluttony, anger, sloth. Those were great years, weren't they? They were just fantastic days. And you go, no, no, they weren't really that at all. They were, they're, they were a mixed bag of good, bad, and, and don't tell your parents sort of a thing. You know, We call them the seven deadly sins. Why? Because they suck the life out of you. They handicap you in life. They undermine your life. They dilute and pollute your life, ultimately. They take you down. So they describe the effect that sin has in defacing God's image in us. And so we take good things, and they're distorted by this broken relationship we have with God. So the good things in life all of a sudden become distorted into, into bad things that are expressed in these seven deadly sins. And so the question is, uh, what do you want to become? What do you want more of in your life? Uh, more pride, more envy, more lust, more greed, more gluttony, more anger, more sloth. Uh, all kidding aside, you would not be praying this for your kids or your grandkids. Lord, just give them more pride. 
No, you'd be praying, Lord, give them a great sense of responsibility. You wouldn't be praying, Lord, I hope they have deep, deep envy. No, you'd be saying, Lord, I pray that they'd emulate people and are motivated by people they see who they want to be like because they, they're people of high integrity. You're not going to say, gosh, just give me a greedy kid. Uh, no. Uh, all the marketing people will take care of that for you. All the people at the checkout lane at Vons will take care of that for you. Uh, but no, you, nobody prays for that for their kids. So they don't pray for any of these things. Give me an angry kid. I want my kid to be more lazy than the other kids. I want my kid to be this, that, or the other. No. Uh, the Lord liberates us from everything that enslaves us. And these words stand for that which enslaves us, that takes our mortal body captive. And it's not to say, ooh, my flesh is unspiritual. To say, no, my old nature is unspiritual. And my flesh suffers the consequences of that. My thinking suffers the consequences of that. What I think is beautiful, all of a sudden I, I turn it into something that's less than beautiful. But here's a great thing. We are new creations in Christ. Jesus is doing something new in us by virtue of his death, resurrection, ascension, and his promised return. He's given us his Holy Spirit to achieve that. So we're new creations in Christ. We're morphing, but morphing into what? Um, this is a great slide in terms of the visual. Uh, little tennis shoes, you know, the same tennis shoe, just bigger. But that's not how people develop. Morphing, that word uh, morph, morphos in Greek, means transformation. It means full development. Uh, it's more than just little shoe, big shoe, same shoe. Uh, trees don't morph. A little tree ends up being just a big version of the original tree. If you see a tree, you can just imagine it's going to be a thicker, bigger, taller version of what it is. People, though, are absolutely different from start to finish. Though every baby looks like Winston Churchill when born, <laughs> thank God they don't remain looking like Winston Churchill as they develop, right? They're, they're cute and different at every stage, but when you see a baby, you might have an inkling of what the baby could look like, but you don't know. That's what's so fun to say, what would this kid look like, this little girl, this little boy? And you see them in the developmental stages. That's why at every uh, rehearsal dinner at a wedding party, you know, before the big day, they show all these slides of the kids with no teeth and, you know, Black eyes and, and you know and, and the head's too big for the body the arms are you know it's just a funny thing to look at oh my gosh how did that kid become this beautiful uh, bride this handsome groom and so this morphology that we're we're experiencing uh, John tells us is this he says now dear friends uh, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known we can't imagine what were we going to be. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And in his eyes, we'll see ourselves as we are. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If you could see the finished version of you that John's describing, you would be tempted to drop to your knees and worship your future self. And your future self would say, hey, get up, get up. It's just me. Hey, it's me. It's Ed. <laughs> it's Susie. It was Tom. Uh, John, uh, it, it, it's, it's just me. Don't worship me. Worship the Lord who made me. This is who you're going to become if you stay focused on him. This is the beautiful thing uh, that the resurrection promises us. And because Jesus rose from the dead and lives as Savior and Lord, we don't just get together once a year and have a sentimental, sappy holiday called Easter. We get together and say, this is stunningly, shockingly transformational, that God has in, in entered history and transformed our experience of being a fully realized, fully developed human being. This is radical stuff. And therefore, we can resist pride and embrace goodness. We can express anger without rage, vengeance, or violence. We can be ambitious without becoming greedy 
avaricious. We can embrace sexual integrity rather than pursue lust and promiscuity. We can enjoy food and drink and material things without falling into gluttony and abuse. We can admire and emulate others without envying them. We can enjoy leisure, rest, and recreation without becoming lazy. This is the remedy that the resurrection brings to these things that threaten our very uh, well-being and our, and our life itself. I said last week that Satan says, look at your sin. Look at your sin. Satan wants to keep us stuck in our old nature. What does God say? <laughs> Don't look at your sin. Look at my son. Your sin, your sin is old news. That's the old you. Yes, you have the capacity to be sinful, but this is where you're going. Look at my son, not at your sin. So the first big idea of the morning is this. Jesus' resurrection is God's stunning solution to the hopelessness of sin. Sin makes us feel hopeless. Do you not ever feel that hopelessness of, I know better, why didn't I do better? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And you want to take it back. You want to undo it. And you go, oh, so embarrassing sometimes being me, the things I can say and do or forget to say and do. And so Jesus' resurrection is God's stunning solution to the hopelessness of sin. What we could never do, what we could never remedy on ourselves, uh, on our own, by ourselves, he does. And here, uh, the Apostle Paul, again, uh, writing to the Roman uh, believers uh, in Caesar's household. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, he's three decades into being a follower of Jesus. He's the writer of most of the New Testament. He's, he's taken the gospel out of a Jewish enclave uh, to all the nations, basically, in the, in the settled world. He's building bridges to people who don't really care about Jewish history or God's promise to the Jews and through the Jews to bless all humanity. This is Paul saying this. He's experienced the goodness of Christ. He knows he's a new creation in Christ. And yet he says, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. What a conflicted human being I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he gives the answer. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is not a superstitious, lucky rabbit foot approach to life. This is not just a resignation of, oh, that's just how I am. It's saying, you know, I know that I'm yearning to be something better and different. Why is that? Because I was made to be something better and different. That's why I yearn for it. And only Jesus can provide that. Now, Jesus will use great counseling, wonderful parents, good life experiences, uh, wise choices. God uses all of that. But it's Jesus, God in the flesh, in this world, making it possible for us to actually become what we were meant to be originally. You see, when, when, when God made humanity, it says in Genesis 1 and 2, they were in the, in the garden and naked and unashamed, totally comfortable in just their skin, right? And so Jesus' resurrection, uh, his resurrection power in our life is our hope and our inheritance. We touched on this last week. Praise be to the God, this is Peter, the apostle writing years after the resurrection, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
Uh, somebody, I, I'm going to follow up on this. I got, I got a note while I was in Dallas and somebody saying, hey, you know, lots of people were, were resurrected. Lazarus, Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead, right? He's been dead for three days. Other examples, Old and New Testament, of people being resurrected. The, the difference, though, is, is they're categorically different. This is a category of one, the resurrection of Jesus that Paul's talking about. Those people went back into the grave. On, on the day that Jesus was crucified, when the temple curtain uh, was torn from, from top to bottom, uh, there was an earthquake, and, and it says that dead people came out of the tombs as if resurrected. That's a little, one of those little liners you go, really? What was that all about? And so there's, there's experiences that we see described in the Bible of people being resurrected, but they died again. Uh, they have not experienced the resurrection that all of us will experience uh, at the end of time itself. And Jesus' resurrection is a unique category of one that allowed him to walk through solid things into rooms and eat food with disciples who were absolutely slack-jawed by what had happened. Like, you've got to be kidding me. To the point that one of them, Thomas, said, you guys are just hallucinating. Had I been here, I would have set you all straight on this. We know him was doubting Thomas. Next time they were all together, Jesus enters the room in a very unusual way. A door's optional, apparently. <laughs> and... And Thomas is sitting there saying, uh, blah, 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 my Lord and my God. So the resurrection of Jesus is a category of one. And all these, all these other expressions and descriptions of resurrection we see in Old and New Testament are simply telling us what is to come. A partial but not fully a complete version of what Jesus himself embodies and personifies. So nobody was resurrected like Jesus has been resurrected, but we all will be resurrected like him at some point. I hope that's clear to you. Because we're not talking about Casper the Friendly Ghost kinds of things. We're not talking about ghost busters. We're not talking about silly, supernatural, superstitious things. We're talking about a disruption of human history rooted in reality, verifiable, imaginative, but not imaginary. And so he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We're experiencing it now, but we'll see the fullest expression of it then. So the question again, another one, is what holds us back from receiving this hope and inheritance? What holds us back? If this is so good and so attractive, if this is what we're made for, what is holding us back? And so this brings us to the first sin on our list for which and of which the resurrection is a remedy. Pride. Pride. Pride is our excessive belief in our own worth and in our own abilities. An excessive belief in our own worth and in our own abilities. We have worth because we're made in God's image. We have abilities because God has given us the capacity to learn and grow. But an excessive belief in those things trips us up and takes us out of the game. Uh, a turtle in Chicago in the winter wanted to go to Miami. Do you blame him? Uh, the turtle thought, gosh, if I walk to Miami, it's going to take a very long time. So he thought about it, and he thought, hey, if I can get a rope, and if I can get two migrating geese to hold the ends of the rope in their beaks, and if I could grasp with my beak, my mouth, the rope in the middle, and they flew me to Miami, I'd make really good time. So the geese agreed to it, and they take off from from Lake Michigan, uh, you know, right there in that beautiful part of downtown Chicago. And as they're flying over the city, some people downtown in their beautiful suits going in and out of offices and expensive restaurants look up and they go, oh my gosh, that is brilliant. Who thought of that? And the turtle, much to his later chagrin, said, I did. 
And I'm sure as he was tumbling down to the air thinking, I should have packed a parachute. I know I should have had another backup for this. This is the problem with pride. Pride is what happens to humility and goodness in a fallen world. It corrupts humility and goodness so that we fall in the world. Uh, goodness enhances everything it touches. Think about that. There's no downside to goodness. Goodness is always good. Uh, yesterday, a bunch of folks went down to Mexico for the umpteenth time to build a, yet another house. Not just for a family, but with a family. And having completed that at the end of a very long day, they didn't say, oh, look at the house we built you. We are so awesome to take time out of our very busy and important lives to come down and help you who don't really deserve it. That's not their thinking at all. Their thinking is, is isn't it great that God has given us the privilege and the opportunity to do something good in his name for people that he loves, which is all people? They don't ask these people what they believe. Do you have a faith? They say, do you need a house? Can we help you get a house? Can we build one together? So at the end of the day, they don't crow about their accomplishment. They say, is it okay if we just all join hands right now and thank God that he has given you this house? And that by his grace, he's used us to help accomplish that? And by the way, here's the key to your new house. See, that's what goodness does. But pride diminishes it. Pride diminishes it. Why? Because pride is a sense of superiority, which is often, as we know, a cover for inferiority. My pride is my armor to guard me from my sense of deep lack. I've got to hide my not okay core with this idealized self so that you'll be impressed and I'll be okay. And, and most of my time and energy goes into image management which is pride-based. So the Bible encourages and promotes goodness and warns us against pride. Goodness lifts us up, pride trips us up, it takes us down. The Proverbs writer says this, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You know it is a Greek word that we use in English, hubris. Hubris, H-U-B-R-I-S, the pride that precedes a fall. Any, if you ever watch any kind of contest show on TV, reality shows, like the cooking ones, the chef kind of challenges and all that. And when they do the little clips and they're interviewing the contestants, you know right before they tell you who won, you know who's going down. It's that man or woman who goes, oh, I've got this thing easy. I'm all over this. I have so dominated this thing. And you just go, oh, no. Everybody in America is cringing, going, oh, no. We know who's going down, right? Uh, and, and, and that's what pride does. And that's why the Bible says, look, just so we all know, pride is not good. We have a complicated situation in our language, right? We use the word pride both negatively and positively. So every time there's some consumer fraud thing or breaking of the law that costs people lives and money, some guy stands up on behalf of the company and says, you know, we take great pride in our work. You go, yeah, I bet you do. I bet you do. Uh, it, it's even crazy when you're trying to talk how much you love and appreciate your kids. I, I, I'm so proud of my children. It ends up being, unfortunately, self-referential. Aren't I awesome? And so I, I would suggest us trying to find other words. Even though pride is okay in our culture, we're not going to change the way our culture uses the word. But maybe try to find a better word. Hey, I really appreciate the choices my kids are making. I really admire the way my kid got up out of the dust, out of a really bad fail. A uh, very embarrassing situation and, and, and uh, told the truth, and we're moving on. Uh, Kara and Kepa Francisco have three uh, great kids, and uh, they, they early on decided, hey, you know what? What if instead of telling our kids to be nice or happy, what if we, we put, took the fruit of the Spirit, those things that are described, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and we use those words? 
instead of nice or happy. Nice and happy are fine, but they're not enough. So instead, they'll say, hey, no, was that kind? You know, hey, I, I love what you just did. That was so kind. It was so gentle the way you handled that situation. You know, isn't it a nice way of thinking about that? So pride is okay to use in our culture. The problem is we use it in ways that um, work against us ultimately. So the larger God is in our life, the less we need pride to overcompensate. Here's how awesome I am. And I'll use anything and everybody to show how awesome I am by way of reference. And it usually becomes a self-reference. You see, that's why Jesus is so compelling. He is perfect, yet not prideful. Have you noticed that when you read the Bible? Now, what's interesting, it's not just they're trying to create this, this um, uh, fake version of Jesus. Because we see in the whole Bible the infallibility of people, and the, or rather the infallibility of God and the fallibility of people. And so when you read the New Testament, one of the shocking things is the people who you think are going to be the heroes are the traitors, the ones that betray Jesus. This is what we talked about last week with, the, with the, the, the resurrection, is that these people who you think should be showing themselves in the, the things they wrote about Jesus as well, we were right there with them the whole time. You see how they scatter and they do these despicable things. So the Bible is actually very clear on, on telling it like it is. They reveal who people really are. But when it comes to Jesus, as they show him in all these scenarios, uh, he's perfect and yet never prideful. In fact, remember at his mock trial, when they brought these false witnesses against him, Eventually, they said, look, we can't find anything bad in this man. So let's find another excuse, another reason to take him out. We can't do it based on his lack of goodness. He's perfect. That's what I find is so fascinating. He's perfect yet not prideful. God came into this fallen world and his goodness shined brightly. So John can say, again, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We've seen Jesus. We know we've seen God. And so Jesus glorified God and brought God's goodness into the world with him. Was there ever anyone more confident and capable, yet so humble? Uh, you can read all about this in my new book, Humility and How I Achieved It. It's awesome. It's, I would say, the best book ever written on humility, personally. Uh, and uh, you've got to read it. Uh, you'll love it. It might change your life. But you're probably not, because you're not good enough for it. But really, I think... Um, <laughs> Buy it in any case, because I deserve it. It's really, really that good. Um, so if the big idea, the first big idea is that his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is God's stunning solution to the hopelessness of sin. The second big point is this. The biggest impediment of pride is that it inhibits our capacity to grow. It inhibits our capacity to grow. We're too proud to admit our faults and our needs. This slide. I think there's another slide coming up. There you go. Have you ever seen this show? Is that not a perfect example of, of a lack of capacity to grow? Uh, the caption could say, I'm brilliant and stupid all at the same time. Right? I mean, that's how we are. We're so smart, we're too smart for ourselves. Um, we're too proud to admit our faults and our needs. I really need to grow at this point in my life. You know, isn't it ironic and paradoxical? You can be a genius in one thing and just totally out of it in other things. That's why people are afraid often to get counsel. They go, I, why? Is, I have to admit that I have a need. I might be embarrassed. I might have that naked feel. Yeah, well, right now you have a lot more problems with being naked. Uh, you're, you're, you're making a mess of your marriage, other relationships. Nobody wants to work with you. You're insufferably uh, proud and arrogant. Um, 
and you think that's a quality, it's not. It's not. And you really need to grow. And our response is something like that. And so don't confuse pride with self-respect and a healthy self-image. That I've got this bulletproof image and that represents health, authentic being. It's not. It's a cover for what yet needs to be developed in you, in each one of us. Every one of us needs this. No one is an exception to this. And what's beautiful about an authentic, real church is that everybody is not uh, being, you know, dripping with false humility. Oh, I'm such a sinner. They go, you know what I did this week? And they tell the story in their life group. Nobody makes it, but they say, oh, here's something I'm wrestling with. Here's something I'm struggling with. Here's something I did, and I'm so embarrassed I did it. Or I just want to change this. I've tried, and I can't. And they allow people to say, wow, us too. We'll pray specifically for you about that thing. We're going to pray for this person about that thing. Uh, or how's it going with your counselor? Wow, I'm learning things about me. I just didn't know. It's so helpful. Or I've been going to this uh, community Bible study, and as I read God's word, I'm starting to see other possibilities that I'd never thought about before. Uh, years ago, I remember being uh, in, a, in a little life group with some business guys in, in Newport Beach. And just because I am immersed in, in relationships every day, when we were doing our life, little life thing, you know, you put a line out and you go, tell us about your life, what's the significant, significant points and me uh, memories in your life. So I'm putting all these things down. And the guy that I'm teamed up with to talk to, I just shared mine. He goes, I, I can't even relate to your, your life. And it wasn't because it was so good. He just said, you know, everything in your life that you describe is relationally based. I said, well, what would it be? He goes, my life. He shows me his lifeline. My first big deal, then my next bigger deal, the car that I always wanted, and the house I always wanted to live in, and the view I always wanted to have overlooking the beach in Newport. And then he had this whole long thing. He said, then my first heart attack, you know, like, and then I realized I was, I was, I was, not infallible. I said, that's relational. He goes, yeah, it was a big fail. <laughs> and finally, my wife got through to me and said, honey, I've been telling you, you need Jesus. And he goes, that's why I'm in this group. And I'm totally embarrassed to be here because I don't know anything about the Bible and I'm, I'm feeling really out of my element. I, I said, that is so fantastic that you come to a place where you're going to say, oh, Lord, I need to grow. And you know, God's going to use everything in your life to bless people. And of course, that's what happened the rest of his life. He just did so many incredibly wonderful things to leverage who he was, but out of now, a place of deep growth and maturity in Christ. It was powerful. So pride is a poor substitute for being an authentic, confident, humble person. Pride turns us into posers, makes us petty, and, and pride likes to pout. I'll give you three quick examples of that. It turns us into posers. We pretend we're somebody we're not. I already said image management takes over. We always have to be right, always have, always have to have the last word, have to impress people. Second, pride makes us petty. Our values get inverted and subverted. And we lose sight of our God-given mission, and we start focusing our, on our self-proclaimed preferences. This is what I want, what I like. I demand it. I deserve it. And there's nothing about my mission in Christ in there. How do I bless people in his name in there? Because you've made your life petty based on, not intentionally petty, but hey, my preferences have risen to be the most important thing to me. The third thing is that pride likes to pout. When little infants and, and, and toddlers and small kids want to pout, they hold their breath or something like that. Right? It's silly. I'm going to hold my breath until I turn blue. All right. A teenager withholds love and affection. 
You know what adults withhold? Money. Adults say, I'm not going to contribute. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to help. I have my little power. I'm going to pout over it. You know what's cute when you're seven months old and you pout? It's less cute when you're seven. It's irritating at 17. It's completely, totally, way beyond the pale, embarrassing when you're 60. Pouting does not look good on a 70-year-old. 80-year-olds who pout, you go, seriously, you're still pouting? I'm not picking on age. I'm just saying we have a lifetime to figure out how to grow beyond being a poser and a, and a petty thinker and a person who pouts their way through life. We can grow. And when you start growing and max out your capacity when you're seven, it's a lot easier to do it when you're 10 and 14 and 25 because all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm, I'm in a situation, I'm making a mess of things. Apparently, I need to grow. And it's people who help us grow. That's the beautiful thing about it. Can you relate to this? If you cannot relate to this, ask your spouse. <laughs> interview your children. Not interrogate, but interview. Ask them. Ask the people with whom you work. Ask the people with whom you're in a life group or you do other uh, things with. Say, hey, give me some feedback. How do you experience me? And then wait. Pause. Like Wayne Beach says, you know, the pause that refreshes. Wait after you ask the question and then wait for them to say, finally, I think they're serious. They're not answering. Okay, I'll tell you. Don't let pride hold you back from living the life you were created for. So the third, the third big issue, besides God's incredible, stunning solution for the hopelessness of sin and the fact that pride inhibits our capacity to grow, here's the third big point of the morning. Recognize pride for what it is and confess your need for deliverance. You cannot fix it on your own. This is why it follows the first two things. The power released through the resurrection and our God-given capacity to admit our need to learn and grow. That sets us up for repentance. Repentance is simply turning toward God. All right, Lord, I've tried everything else. I may as well try you. It's like, really? Why is that the last thing? It should be the first thing. Turn to him. Receive his hope in your inheritance. Uh, James said it this way. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I love this slide. This kid is so high, you can't believe a dad could throw the kid high. This is a very fit father and a very light kid, apparently. This kid is defying gravity. But there's, if you can see it up close, there's a serene look on the kid's face like, oh, yeah. I'm up here because of my dad. And it's a great view. And for just a few seconds, I'm taller than him. And I can see everything and everybody. And the good news is my dad's going to catch me because we do this all the time. I say, Daddy, throw me up, and he does. And I laugh, and he laughs. My mother freaks out. But because my dad never drops me in her presence... And I've never had to have a cast yet. We keep doing this, see? We keep humbling ourselves before the Lord. And not for humility. We just say, Lord, what is it you want to teach me today? What is it you want to work on in me? What is it that I should know? How can I be better equipped for my mission in life? See, God delights in lifting us up. He delights in lifting you up. He wants to lift you up. All you have to do is say, Lord, lift me up. And that's what humility is. It's not humiliation. It's humility. Lord, I need what you alone can provide. Uh, and that's why when we humble ourselves before one another in a marriage, in a relationship, we say, I, I, I need what I can't provide so I can love you better. Help me do that. And all of a sudden, people become our partners in lifting us up. 
Jesus said it this way. Matthew quotes him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That was a song uh, we sang earlier, the scandal of grace. God wants to fill our souls and make us alive in him. And so Jesus' resurrection remedies the power of pride with the power of life. The only known remedy for the power of pride is the power of his life in ours. Because all of our remedies are simply masking the pride, gaming our pride, rationalizing our pride, faking it, but not changing. Only his life in us can release us from the need to be proud, right? The need to overcompensate. So he swaps out the power of pride with the power of his life. And all of a sudden, things become bigger and better. And even your failures become places where he meets you. Even your doubts become places where he says, uh, you're going to be okay. Just pay attention to me and my word. Pay attention to the people I'm bringing into your life. He makes us truly good and renders pride unnecessary and irrelevant. You do not need it anymore. It's an unnecessary burden and drag on your progress in life. Let it go. Seek first his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Everything else will follow that. Uh, I've been praying this. I, I just wrote a simple one, one line prayer that I've been reflecting on this week. Um, and I invite you to pray with me uh, in, as you go into this next week. It's this Lord, teach me to enjoy your goodness in my life and bless others with it. Because goodness is the opposite of pride. Authentic goodness, because something good is happening to me and it comes out of me, it leaks out of me. It comes out the way I talk and the way I act. I don't have to be protective to what did I say, what did I do, how am I coming across? It's just like I want to be enjoying this goodness from God. <coughs> Lord, teach me to enjoy your goodness in my life and bless others with it. Would you say that with me? Lord, teach me to enjoy your goodness in my life and bless others with it. And so, Lord Jesus, that's our prayer. We pray this in your name and for your sake. Thank you, Pastor Steve. What a great reflection that the problem in the world is sin, but the only remedy is Jesus. And no matter what's going on in our lives, that he is the solution. He is the remedy. Well, this brings us to a time of communion. I'd like to invite the communion servers up to receive the elements. If you don't call Christ your Lord and Savior, think about the process of communion as we discuss it. We invite you just to sit in your seat and just reflect on what Jesus is and what the message you heard today is about. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. This is our opportunity to reflect on what he's done for us as we receive these elements, we receive the bread and we receive the cup. Let us think about what he's done for us. Let us pray. Lord, in the shadow of Easter, we just sit in awe of the revolution you started. You conquered death for us. So we would no longer need to be afraid we just look to you. Lord, also the, the sins and the, the troubles of this world that plague us. 
we can now look to you because you are the remedy. You are the solution. Lord, we just thank you. And as we, as we take these in remembrance of what you've done, help us to reflect on the community you've put us in and the commission you've called us to, all for your glory. Lord, we just thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.
sing that one more time. suggestion it's not a subtle hint it's definitive that God has entered the world and has given us the power to live he broke the power of sin and death over us though we will sin and we will die but we are becoming like him as we walk with him one day at a time now and forever this is the nature of the benediction the blessing that we leave you with is that you in faith belong to him not by your faith but by your faith in him and what he's doing in you so now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us everything we need to walk with him now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.